Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ertube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hello, you sentient, sexy balls of stardust. This is Struggle Care, the podcast about self-care by a host that hates the term self-care. And today's episode is probably not the one you want to play in front of your kids. And if you are my mother or my father or my in-laws, probably also not the episode that you want to listen to unless you want way too many details about my sex life. So if you are neither a child nor related to me, carry on. Welcome back to the Struggle Care Podcast. I have an exciting guest today. You may know her as Katie Osaurus from TikTok. It's Katie Osborne. Hello, it's me. Katie is Soros. I don't know what I was going for there. It's fine. Oh, it's fine. Listen, guys, I prepared for this podcast by saying, meet me at the Maypole at 10 a.m. We're going to do a podcast. So um, we're live here from the Maypole. Uh, we're live here from the Maypole. That's about the amount of uh, preparation that I put into this podcast, which is not a reflection on how excited <laughs> I am or how important of a guest you are. It's okay. I feel like that just means that you have a lot of trust in me. So I'll take it as a compliment. Well, I did have this thought of like people a lot of times when I'm on their podcast will like prepare questions ahead of time and send me questions. And I've definitely done that for people. But I'm also someone who is like perfectly happy to like just like riff off the hip. And I did have this thought where I was like, I'm super grateful that Katie is the one on the podcast today. (laughs) Because something tells me she could probably just go off the dome that's what my entire podcast is that's what we do on our podcast we pick a topic and then we just go i don't know what do you think about this topic and then sometimes we wind up staying on topic and sometimes we end up like reviewing movies like it just it's you never know so i get it well i'm super excited about our topic today speaking of topics because as many of you maybe know katie and i both are over on tiktok and we've had quite similar trajectories. I feel like we've been at the same follower count for months now. Not static, but like when you grow, I grow. Boy, I sure hope you grow next week then because, oh my God. <laughs> I think I got 10 whole followers yesterday. It was really exciting. Oh no. It's fine. We're all fine. Well, listen, if you're listening to this, you got to go follow Katie. Okay. Go, go follow me. Well, I mean, listen to the podcast first. Make your own informed decision. <laughs> Make an assessment. So, hey, Casey, what are we talking about today? Well, Katie, we're going to talk about sex today. So, sex and ADHD. This is an interesting cross section. Most of your content's about ADHD. Yes. And then you started this series about sex and ADHD, which is fascinating to me. So tell me how this came about to be a topic of convo. Okay. So, well, uh, do you want the long story or the medium story? I want whatever story you want to tell. Okay. 
so my relationship with sex has always been really interesting because I grew up in a very conservative, very religious household. And so sex and our bodies were, I was raised thinking that they were very shameful and, and you know, something to be like embarrassed about and we didn't talk about. But what that also meant was that I didn't have a really good understanding about my sexuality and about my body and that kind of thing. And so then as I got older, that was kind of something that I wanted to take back. I wanted to empower myself to like sort of understand myself in that way. And so I got really into like kink and that kind of thing. And I started educating on kink and that type of stuff. And then after I got diagnosed with ADHD, I started doing some research. But at the time, it wasn't specifically about just, you know, ADHD, neurodivergency and sex. But I started looking into, you know, just ADHD's effect on our lives. And what I was, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was surprised to find out that ADHD isn't just a school thing. It's not just a work thing. It affects every facet of our lives including stuff like orgasms. And when I learned that, my mind was quite literally blown. And so I started sort of like studying in secret to become a certified sex educator because I'm one of those people where if I tell people I'm going to do it, then I won't do it. And then, uh, you know, and then they ask you six months later and it's embarrassing. (laughs) So I toiled in secret for a year and I took a lot of classes and did a lot of work to become a certified sex educator. But the thing that solidified it for me, and I, I tell this story a lot, but I like it because I think it's really important. So in the middle of one of my classes, it was being taught by this very neurotypical man who was just kind of like, you know, talking about sex stuff. But there was this class that we were taking about like, you know, what happens when sex gets interrupted? What happens when, you know, like you fall off the bed or something goes wrong? And he very cavalierly said, you know, you just don't have to worry about it. The moment is not precious. It's not, you don't have to worry about it. You can just laugh it off, come back. And I was like, that is so counterintuitive to everything that I know and understand about sex. Because like, yes, I agree, you should be able to just, you know, laugh it off and come back. But if I fall off the bed, you know, like I run the risk of noticing that the carpet needs to be vacuumed or like looking out the window and realizing that the UPS truck is here or whatever it may be. And so I asked and I said, well, what about people with ADHD? You know, like what about people who do get very distracted or like task initiation or that kind of stuff? And I really got blown off. And that was one of the first moments where I realized how much of the conversation about sex and intimacy surrounds the assumption that both or all parties involved, I guess I should say, are neurotypical and able-bodied. And once I started really thinking about what I had learned and really started unpacking what I had learned, I realized that like there weren't conversations happening in like a large scale way. And I thought, well, I have the platform and I have this very vested interest in this topic. So I guess I'll become the lady on TikTok who talks about sex and ADHD. The end. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So I actually binge watched a bunch of these TikToks recently to prepare for us talking. And that was the one that stood out to me the most where the guy said like, well, the moment's not fragile. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I mean, I get what he's saying, but also like I definitely more relate to what you're saying where like when you get in that zone, there's this like, okay, I'm in tune with my body. I'm in tune with my partner. I'm feeling my sensations. I'm enjoying myself. And it's almost like you have these like really fragile blinders on. And there's this tightrope of like 
okay, if I think too much about how it's going well, if I think too much about how I'm in the moment, then I will take myself out of the moment. Yes. Yes, that happens to me all the time. (laughs) And I was like, it is fragile. Like being in that sort of like erotic zone where you have to pay, I don't know, but you're right. It's fragile. Yeah. And the thing that I think is fascinating is that there have only been a handful of studies because I'm like, I'm very like, I'm the academic one. I'm just like, I'm going to go research. But there's only been a couple of studies done. But like, they all kind of agree that about 40% of everybody with ADSD, irregardless of gender, struggles in some way with sex or sexual dysfunction. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is that one of the most frustrating things about having conversations about sex and sexuality is the terminology of sexual dysfunction. Because what is actually more accurate for a lot of people is what like I would say is like, sexual disappointment, right? Where it's not like there's anything medically wrong with you. It's not like there's something that is not working. It's just not how you want it to be. And that can be even more frustrating, right? Because like if, you know, a person with a penis goes to the doctor and they're like, oh no, I'm having trouble with sex. The doctor can say, oh, you have erectile dysfunction. Congratulations. And like move on with your day. But with like ADHD, where like symptomatically it's I'm checking out during sex or I'm having a hard I like that Bailey found her squeaker toy right when I got to the serious (laughs) discussion part. I got a dog, uh, listeners, and I regret giving her squeaky toys. That's what I learned. But, you know, like with ADHD, it can be really hard to look at it and say, okay, well, I'm checking out during sex or I'm struggling to stay focused during sex or I'm struggling to get in the mood during sex. That is not a dysfunction. That's not something that is like clinically wrong with you. It just means that there is like a struggle there or like extra work that you have to do. And so sometimes the first step in even having a conversation about sex and about intimacy is like unpacking the toxic ideas that we have about sex and about intimacy and like that it's supposed to be this one way or it's supposed to be easy or you're supposed to be, you know, turned on at the drop of a hat. And that's just not the case. And I think that is, that's a big part of it is in the conversation about neurodivergency is also just really starting to unpack the expectations versus sort of like reality of intimacy as a whole. So it becomes very large, very quickly. One of the things that you talked about in one of your TikToks that I thought was really meaningful was that when you talk about quote unquote sexual dysfunction or sexual struggles, you mention troubles getting aroused, but then you specifically mention trouble staying aroused. And that's something that I feel like is not talked about a lot when we talk about sex and problems with sex, because the focus is so much on penetration in sort of a heteronormative view that we focus on getting aroused as being like the most important thing, because like, if you have a penis, like you have to get aroused for like the mechanics to work. And if you're a woman, you have to get aroused for the mechanics to not be painful, right? Like, so we sort of focus because we have such a penetrative view of sex. It's like, well, as long as we can get the P and the V, like it should be smooth sailing after that. But the reality is, I think, especially as someone with ADHD, that feeling of kind of needing to stay head in the game to really be in the experience But also, you know, if you get into a stretch where you're thinking like, oh, God, I'm losing it, I'm losing it, I'm losing it, 
because, you know, there's something that changed in the environment or in the move or in the position. And if you're not in a place where you've worked and talked with your partner about being able to vocalize at that moment, hey, position change. Or like, hey, nope, we're going to go left, not right. We're going to go up, not down. We're going to go whatever, whatever, because you feel like it should always just flow. It should always just be this magical, you know, like whatever, is that then you find yourself in that spot where as you feel the arousal waning in the middle of the sex act, you get into that like meta headspace of like, it's, oh God, oh God, oh God, get it back, get it back, get it back, get it back. In my experience, like once you get into that space of almost not overthinking it, but almost like having like meta thoughts about the experience, it's like, it's over. (laughs) So one of the things that I find to be really interesting and really sort of like along with that is that in working with a lot of neurodivergent people, sort of like regardless of what your neurodivergency is, a lot of neurodivergent people struggle to know what they want or struggle to articulate their needs or feel like they can't. And that is like a really big one. And a lot of that comes out of trauma. It comes out of living with an undiagnosed neurodivergency or feeling like there's something inherently wrong with you or feeling broken or feeling guilty about it or all of these sort of like very negative emotions that are associated with, you know, the experience of late diagnosis. And so then it winds up being this thing where the conversation is never just about ADHD. It's never just about intimacy. It's never just about this like one thing. It's this like massive sort of like tangled yarn ball of like the effect that ADHD has your on your, you know, attention span, but also then the trauma of not being able to articulate what you want or having gotten in trouble a lot for asking for stuff over and over again. And so it can be really difficult for a neurodivergent person to even start to like find, you know, the thread to pull on that's like, okay, well, how do I get into my body? How do I figure out what I need? How do I figure out what I want? And that... I don't have a good answer for, but one of the things that I talk about a lot is that, is that specific experience of struggling to articulate needs and struggling to articulate wants, because I think it's important for other people to hear that they're not alone. They're not the only person who struggles to articulate or struggles to know what they want. And that I think sometimes can be, I don't want to say more important, but I think it's a really important part of the process when you're starting to think about sex and sexuality as it relates to your neurodivergency. Does that make any sense? No, it does because you know <laughs> what comes to my mind is like when you spend the majority of your life, particularly as a sort of person socialized as a female, living as a female, like you and you're neurodivergent, like you basically have a history of being told you're too much. Yep right? You're too much. Calm down. Wait your turn. Quit interrupting. And not only that, you're told that you're too much, but you're told that your too muchness is relating to a character defect. Like you're selfish, you're self-absorbed, you're an attention whore. Like, And so we develop this shame about our personalities and we learn how to perform at such a young age. So that, you know, whether I'm in the classroom or with friends, like I learned to constantly have this meta narrative dialogue about my behavior and about my experience. Okay, when is it okay for me to talk? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, and go, right? Or like, okay, I just said a thing. I just did a thing. Okay, was that too much? Was it enough? Do they think this? And one of the things you, you talk about a couple of people, I think you read Come As You Are, the book, and 
Come As You Are is a great book if anyone wants to read up on sex. And then there's another figure. Did you study Esther Perel at all? Okay, so both of these figures I am obsessed with, and they really represent what I think as a therapist is a much better way of thinking about sex. Because if anyone's listening, like if you've ever been to like old school, like sex therapy, it's very weird. And it's very old. It's very based in like, well, men have needs and men need sex to feel intimate. And why don't you just schedule sex? And and God help you if you were ever in like a religious context where they talked about like duty and sacrifice and serving. And I think that this idea that they talk about in Come As You Are and that Esther Perel talks about where sex to be like good sex, to be intimate sex, it requires that there not be that meta narrative dialogue that you just are authentically yourself and you're coming to claim your pleasure and you're coming to interact with this other being and there's this freeness and this abandon and this surrender. And obviously there has to be trust and safety and all of those things for that to happen. But it makes sense why someone who is neurodivergent would really struggle because not only do we have trouble sort of paying attention, but it's not as though paying attention has to do with distraction. I mean, it can as much as it has to do with like, we have not had practice turning off that meta narrative, like dialogue that we constantly have about our behavior. Yeah, absolutely. To just focus on experiencing. I'll say this. I was the most like helpful thing I ever heard from a sex therapist that is kind of like up on the new research about sex is he said that the first thing he does with couples that come in that are struggling with intimacy is he says he tells them to stop referring to sex as a need and stop referring to like drive, like, oh, low drive, high drive, all these things. But he said that because as Esther Perel says, like obligation is the opposite of eroticism. Like if you are just trying to do your good little, you know, neurodivergent girl thing and like read the room, gain the expectations, get the rules and then perform, like you might perform well, but you're not going to experience it in a way that's fulfilling for your, you, at least eventually, right? And so yeah. he says, I want to get rid of these words like need and and drive because when you say to your partner, I have a high sex drive and I have a need and I need you to meet my needs. It automatically puts your partner in the seat of obligation and duty and service. And particularly if you live life as a woman, we're already told that our whole lives are about obligation and duty and service. He said, it is so different. He said, you don't have a need for sex. You have a desire for sex. But I'm not downplaying it. Like, it's an important desire. And it's such a different experience to go to your partner and say, I have a deep burning desire to have a passionate, intimate sex life with you. Yeah. And inviting them into a space where you're asking them to unfold. You're asking them to abandon. You're asking them to meet you in this place that only the two or three or however many of you, right, can be in this intimate space where you are invited to turn off this meta narrative. You are invited to surrender and be authentically just who you are and lose yourself in the experience. He's like, how much like that'll get your panties wet, <laughs> right? It's such a different way. 
It's so much better. I mean, and maybe I'm working too hard to like shoehorn it into like a tight little point. But like for me, a lot of times that conversation around like sex drive and like this like idea that like, oh, I need sex or whatever. A lot of times, like especially with sex drive and like libido, I related a lot like when I'm talking and like doing like speaking stuff to the idea of like high functioning versus low functioning Mm. because I hate that. And it's such like a problematic take on support needs, but like high functioning, low functioning, high sex drive, low sex drive, according to who, according to what measure, according to what metric are we deciding that, well, you have, you know, you're low functioning or you have low sex drive or whatever, because, and this is like, honestly, I'm not even embarrassed to say this. This is something I didn't know until I was literally 30 years old is that sex drive is defined by the individual. Sex drive is not, there's not like a board of sex drive guys who decided like if you think about sex four times a day that's high you know and if you (laughs) and uh, like it was one of those things where like i just always just like thought that there was just this understanding that sex drive is like a rateable metric one through ten you know just like a valid scale like out there yeah yeah you know it's like the smiley face chart at the hospital but it's like no like your sex drive is entirely based only on you and only on your experience and sex drive wanes it waxes and it wanes you know like it is very very natural and very very normal to have peaks and valleys in your desire especially when you're in a safe and supportive and healthy relationship because like sometimes you know you got to just deal with like the in-laws or whatever and there's not time for intimacy and sometimes it's like game on you know But this idea that there is like one right way to live and experience sex drive and there's one right way, you know, for like whatever it may be, that I think is also one of the most damaging things that I like a lot of times that's what I have to start with. Like, I don't even have to start with the questions about ADHD or neurodivergency. What I start with is questions like, well, you know, my partner needs to have sex three times a week, but I want sex one time a month. What do I do? And I'm like, have a conversation about your mismatched desires and don't do anything you don't want to do. Like that's step one. And that's what I think is really interesting because again, it's, we're talking about socialization. We're talking about like patriarchy stuff. We're talking about like white supremacy stuff. And it gets so large so quickly that it's like, I love talking about this, but I always have this little bit of dread because it's like, I can't fix everything and I can't talk about everything all at one time. But that's like, that's where my brain goes is, is just really thinking about that a lot. I don't know what I was going, where I was going with that, but it's fine. No, but I'm glad that you went there because here's what I think. Like, I also come from an evangelical background. I still practice in the Christian faith, but I do not belong to a church. And I would consider myself a somebody who has deconstructed that evangelical vein. And I think that because I've had a lot of experience with marriage therapists in that world, and I think a good bit of sex therapy in general is really heavily influenced by those Puritan values and those ideas that like, well, men need sex and men's brains are like waffles and women's brains are like spaghetti and all of this (laughs) fucking junk science about how we have gendered brains that are so different. And, you know, men need 
sex to feel love and they need respect, but women need love to feel. It's just, it's so wrong. But one of the things is, is like, if you are someone who is going to go to therapy to talk about sex and the first thing your therapist starts talking about is sex, they don't know what they're talking about. Yes. 100%. Because we are so influenced by white supremacy and we are so influenced by capitalism and we are so influenced by the trauma of being neurodivergent or the heteronormative sort of values. And like, there's so many things that are affecting our sex lives that we don't know that we have to unpack or at least investigate before we can even get to a place that answers the question of what do I do if I'm, you know, I want it once a month and he wants it three months, you know, three times a month or a week or whatever. Like there are so many layers here. And just as, I mean, as everything in our lives is complicated, like we don't check those things at the door when we go into the bedroom. Yeah. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash struggle, promo code STRUGGLE. I've never met a free trial I didn't like or a budget I didn't listen to, which is why Rocket Money is perfect for me. And it might be perfect for you too. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. And they send me emails keeping me updated with where I am on that budget. Rocket Money will even try and negotiate lower bills for you up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users. They can find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and they have saved people over a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. And one of the things that I struggle with the most is that is I think just like the fundamental misunderstanding of how ADHD affects adults. Because like, I mean, honestly, the reason why I started doing all of this and doing what I do is because I just got fed up with reading literature that like seemed to imply that like on your 18th birthday, when you become an adult, the ADHD fairy comes and you're cured, you know, and like just like the insidious way that like ADHD is discussed where it's like, oh, you know, like 
I don't know, 15% of kids have ADHD, but seemingly only 3% of adults have ADHD. It's like, no, those people still have ADHD. They just learn strategies and coping mechanisms and their ADHD is such that they can exist without like needing medication that doesn't make ADHD go away. But because there is so much like fundamental misunderstanding about what neurodivergency is, what ADHD is, what autism is, whatever it may be, that then you immediately start running into stuff like, well, ADHD is just a school thing, or it's just a work thing, or it's just a keeping your house clean thing, or it's just a that thing. But it's like, no, ADHD is, like I said earlier, it is entwined in every single aspect of everything we do. And then on top of that, you have a lot of like those universal experiences like rejection sensitivity and struggling with, you know, like you said, the trauma of neurodivergency. And so when you start having conversations, like I agree, like I really don't think you can start with sex. Like you have to start with the individual and the individual's experience of navigating through the world. But it's so much easier to just go, oh, well, you could schedule sex for Thursdays. And it's like, that's not (laughs) getting to the root of anything. It's, you know. And like anytime a therapist or somebody gives the advice of like, well, you know, you just have to maybe do it sometimes when you don't want to as an act of love. It's like, that's not the answer because truly, 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 One of my favorite phrases is that neurons that wire together fire together. (laughs) And it just means that like if you're doing a behavior in a specific emotional context enough times, your brain will begin to associate that emotional context with that behavior. And it will get to the point where even if you're not in that emotional place, you will not be able to do that behavior without bringing on those emotions. Yeah. So if The more times you have sex when you don't want to, the more times your brain will associate sex with something that is not something you want to do. And so even if you're in a position where, oh, now I want it, you get in the bedroom or the kitchen or the backseat of your car or whatever, and your brain will start to shut things down. It'll shut your body down. It'll shut your mind down because your brain you fed your brain this script. Like you've literally given it a piece of code that says sex is something that we just get through. Sex is something we distract ourselves to get through. Sex is something that isn't about our pleasure. It's about their pleasure. And you can't just decide that you're not going to use that piece of code without like good bit of debugging. And every time you do obligatory sex, you reinforce those neural pathways. And random swing and here, but I was thinking about how the reward motivation interest of somebody with ADHD is different than someone who's neurotypical. And I'm sure people have heard this before if they've looked into ADHD, but when they talk about having interest-based motivation systems, we talk about, I think it's like interest, competition, novelty, and urgency. One of the things that occurs to me is that I think that you, when you're young, when you're dating, you may not have had any sexual issues, but then you get with a partner. And if you decide to be monogamous with that partner, fast forward months or years, and all of a sudden you're struggling with things with sex that you never have before. And you're going, what's wrong with me? Do I not love this person? Do I like all these things? And to me, it's just so obvious that in dating or in your, that honeymoon phase, or you have multiple partner, whatever, like your sex is naturally going to have a sense of novelty and urgency and interest to it. 
And then fast forward, if you're in a monogamous relationship, or maybe it's not even a monogamous relationship, you just have a committed partner, even if it's an open relationship or a poly relationship. And all of a sudden, like sex is familiar. It doesn't have those qualities anymore. And as somebody with ADHD, like you actually have to then create those qualities again in your in the bedroom. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, this is the point where I always feel bad because I'm always just like, I swear I'm not trying to recruit anybody to my team. Um, but like, it's one of the reasons why I got so invested in like educating about kink because I I really do think that kink is one of the most powerful tools that a person with ADHD has in their toolbox for things like the novelization of ADHD, you know, or like intimacy with ADHD, or, you know, the, I don't know, the shaking of things up with ADHD. And it's so funny to me, because like, a lot of times I think people hear kink, and they think like, you know, whips and chains and signing contracts and going to dungeons, which like, if you're into it, cool. But when I talk about kink, what I mostly just mean is exploring things sensorily, because that is very much like, you know, if you boil it down and boil it down at its very core, kink is simply a, I think, deeper exploration of the individual senses and how they tie into the intimate experience. And so, you know, things like, you know, the one that I always some like wind up giving an example of is like, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's really hard for me to stay in the moment during sex because, you know, I look around and I see like the messy bedroom or I'm looking at the dusty ceiling fan or whatever. And I go, cool, wear a blindfold. Problem solved. You know, and people go, oh, that's so, that's so kinky. Oh, my gosh. So, oh, I couldn't. And I'm like, but try it. See what happens. You know, for other people like me, especially like this is one that I do is I really like wearing like wireless earbuds during intimacy because like my neighbor mows his lawn. 97 times a week it is the weirdest i don't know what that dude is doing but he is retired and he is living his best grass mowing life but it's so hard for me because you know we'll be in the middle of something and then the lawnmower starts and i'm like well there's a noise you know but it's like you know what fixes that having music that i'm just listening that is technically considered kink like now that's like the most you know cool whippy you know vanilla kink ever but you know stuff like that and so it's like finding there's no shame in finding clever and creative and resourceful workarounds when it comes to feeling like that novelty is wearing off or feeling like that urgency has worn off because i like i don't want to speak for every person with adhd but i can say personally i sabotaged so many good relationships because i didn't have a understanding of what a healthy stable relationship looked like because my frame of reference especially when i was younger was movies and tv and you know i talked about this on tiktok the other day but like movies and tv there's never a scene where the couple sits down and says uh hey i love you so much but like oral really doesn't do it for me and it's awkward when you do it and i feel weird so like could we find something like that scene doesn't exist on tv you know and so it's like there's this idea that like for true intimacy or you know by extension true love to exist intimacy and sex is this act of mind reading. It is this act of like immediately being ready to go with the drop of a hat and being able to turn on and, you know, whatever parts you have, the arousal is there and 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 good and working and functional and everybody's in the mood and there's, you know, 
no laundry that needs to be, you know, put into the dryer. It's very, I don't even say sanitized, but it's a very sensationalized idea of what intimacy really is. Well, it's really cinematic. Like, like never is there the scene where like, you know, you crawl into bed with your partner and they go, I love you, but you smell. Yeah. Will you take a shower before we do this? Like, and it's just, it really is so huge because so many people I think that are struggling are locked into this. They think it's a foregone conclusion that if they're struggling with this, it has something to do with their partner or they are broken. So like we immediately go to either I as a person am broken or I don't want to share any of this with my partner because I don't want them to think it's their fault. Like I don't love them. Like I'm not attracted to them. And I think that it's so important that we normalize having these conversations. And the other thing that's wild, like we think that having those kinds of conversations is going to like be really not sexy. Like, oh, it's so administrative. It's so whatever. But here's what I have found. Like intimacy is so much more than just sex. Like intimacy has to do with connection. And I was so surprised to learn that having those conversations was very intimate for me. And I don't mean intimate, like, (laughs) you know, candlelight, like, ooh, I have butterflies in my stomach. But especially with a long-term partner, having those kind of conversations are very connecting. Like just talking about your relationship, talking, like the feeling of we're on the same team and we're like, we're in the trenches, man. We're going to figure this out. We're going to have the best sex life ever. We're going to eat like, that is the camaraderie that happens there. If both of you approach it in that way is like builds a lot of intimacy and that intimacy helps you in the bedroom. And I just love, I love when you talk about kink. And I think that for a lot of people, like you said, they hear kink and they go right to like whips and chains and dungeons instead of really having this, or they go to like, if they have a background from church, they go to like perversion. Like that's the word that they associate with it. Instead of like play, like that should be where our mind goes when we hear kink is play. Oh, I have so many thoughts. But I mean, I do want to say one thing about what you just said is that I think that there's like a third component that sometimes happens. It's like, you know, people either think it's a commentary on me or I don't want to hurt their feelings. But the third option, and this is one that I get a lot in the work that I do, is that having to have that conversation is some kind of red flag about the relationship. And that the need to sit down and discuss, I shouldn't have to ask for him to tell me that I love that he loves me. I shouldn't have to ask him to bring me flowers. I shouldn't have to ask her to, you know, remember to load the dishwasher, whatever it may be. There's this idea. And again, I think it, I really think it goes back to like, I always hate saying the media, but I think in this case, it, it, it is applicable. Like, I think it goes back to like the media and those sort of like patriarchal standards of like communication is somehow bad. Communicating somehow implies a problem. Having to sit down and talk about, you know, whatever your needs may be, that's not an intimate thing. That's a thing to be feared. And that's like one of the biggest things that I constantly fight against in my work is like, well, I shouldn't have to ask for him to tell me that he loves me. It's like, well, it should be automatic and it should always be exactly when I need it. And, you know, I always kind of look and it's, I try to be very like, you know, non-judgmental because that's important, but I find myself looking at, at 
a lot of people and saying, well, how will he know that you need to hear I love you unless you tell him that you need to hear I love you? Well, he should just know. Well, he just told you that he grew up in a house where, you know, people didn't say I love you. So that's not a behavior that he knows and that he appreciates the same way that you do. And then they look at each other and go, oh, well, that makes sense. But that that immediate jump to having to talk about it implies a problem, I think, is so indicative of like the culture that we're living in, this culture of like we, especially like people who have been socialized as women, like articulating our needs somehow makes us a a less than partner or a worse partner. And it's exactly the opposite. It is exactly the opposite. In like having those conversations breeds intimacy. It breeds vulnerability. It breeds trust. It breeds communication. And that makes for better sex. Because when you feel connected and trusted and and able to be open with somebody, you're going to have better sex. That's just, that's just, that's science. (laughs) And I think, you know, we've sort of been talking a lot about from the perspective of somebody who is female presenting or socialized as a woman. But when I think about somebody who was raised as a man or presents as a man, or who's been basically living under the male script of patriarchy, I think that a lot of men have been socialized to be uncomfortable talking about emotion, uncomfortable talking about something that's in progress, right? Because they're supposed to fix it and it's not supposed to be emotional. And so they look at the act of sex as their one way to get emotional closeness or intimacy. And so when you say, well, we could have this conversation and this conversation for one party might feel very intimate talking about the ins and outs and the nuts and bolts. Whereas like I can definitely see someone living under a patriarchal script of masculinity being extremely uncomfortable in those conversations and feeling vulnerable and feeling like I don't feel close when we talk about this. I feel laid bare. I feel insecure. I feel like we're talking about things that I have failed at. And I have been told culturally from a white supremacist culture, from a patriarchal culture, that if I fail, I am worthless. And so they're just, again, it's hugely powerful things to unpack before you even get to the bedroom, if you will. I want to ask you about (laughs) one of your most popular series, which I have thoroughly enjoyed and is probably the reason that I realized that I am, I too am. Do you want me, oh, do you want me to do it? Is it a burnt out gifted intelligence to Mr. Brett with a praise kink? Oh yeah, I want you to do it. Ha ha. Yes. Okay. Just talk to us about this. Well, what would you, <laughs> I don't know what you want me to talk about. For the listeners at home, what does it mean to be a burnt out, talented, gifted kid, submissive brat with a praise kink? So do you like how I always cleverly managed to bring it back to neurodiversity? Like it's just, I'm shoehorning it in so hard right now. <laughs> But like, I think one of the more interesting things that I have learned and also experienced in my own life is that for a lot of, again, I'm talking about the socialized as a woman experience in this capacity, but for a lot of people who have lived that experience with undiagnosed neurodivergencies, they often get thrown into the gifted kid program because neurodivergent kids tend to be really good at like certain stuff. Now, there are certainly there's also the experience of neurodivergent kids who who unfortunately get put in, you know, the remedial behavioral problems. Yeah. 
remedial part, which is also like just as unfair for its own set of reasons. But my experience was being an undiagnosed neurodivergent kid who got thrown into gifted programs because I was extremely good at school. So already off the bat, like my experience with ADHD was not that I was failing out of school or I was struggling in school. School was my time to shine. School was the thing that I had and the place where I would get the accolades and I would get the recognition and I was in every club and every, you know, straight A's and all of that stuff. Do you want to know how I refer to that? I would love to. Being smart was the driftwood that I clung to in a sea of insecurity. That's how I know that you've written a book because that's good author wordings. But like, but that was it. It was like, and for a lot of people, you're exactly right. That is the driftwood that they cling to. And so a lot of people develop this sort of like identity as like, I'm good at school and I'm smart and I'm gifted. I'm the gifted kid or whatever. And then this thing happens where you graduate. And or, you know, you do what I do and you go to grad school three more times because you just like you can't get enough. But then like at some point you don't have anybody to tell you that you're doing a good job and you don't have anybody to say, oh, my God, you're so smart and this is amazing. And you're you have so much potential because now you're like 35, you know, (laughs) you're like, what am I doing? And so like I jokingly started talking about like being a burnt out, gifted and talented, submissive brat with a praise kink. And it turned out that there is a hell of a lot of us out there on the old TikToks. But I think that I make a lot of jokes about that series because that's kind of like my fun, you know, like silly series. But I also think that there is something like deeply truthful about that, living that experience of being, you know, somebody who comes from that world of, you know, gifted and talented programs and now feeling older and feeling more grown up, but still wanting to hear that good job and still wanting to hear that, like, wow, that was, you did a good job, A+. And so for a lot of people, sometimes it just shows up as a praise kink or just, you know, enjoying praise. And so, yeah. And so I started that series very facetiously, but one of the things that has come out of it is honestly just like a profound appreciation for the community of people who sort of like identify along that line. Cause it's like, it can be really, I don't want to say hard, but it can be really challenging to navigate the world and have these places where like you really want to hear the good job and you really want to get the accolades, but like, where do you get them now that you're 35? And so it turns out that Turns out the answer is blowjobs. The answer is blowjobs and, and, you know, like, you know, occasionally going to the sex dungeon or whatever it may be for you. Yeah. But yeah. Every time I hear you talk, I just have this overwhelming sense of like, are we the same person? We might be. I've been, I've been thinking about it. You have cooler tattoos than me. I did. I also went to grad school literally because I finished college and thought, oh God, I am not ready to be an adult. I will just keep going to school. I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. 
Shout out to Claritin for giving me some free samples and for sponsoring this podcast. I am a seasonal allergy sufferer, which means that sometimes I'm lying in bed reading a book that is super happy and my husband says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Because I am sniffling and he thinks I'm crying. But no, it's just seasonal allergies. Luckily, that does not happen anymore because I use Claritin D. We can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sniffing, sneezing, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat. It's great. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies. It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. As for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter, you don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Um, yeah, so I had a similar experience in school. And mine was interesting because I was very good at school. I was very intelligent. I was one of those like, oh, let's pick you out in the seventh grade to go take the SATs, like that kind of thing. But I never, ever did homework because uh, ADHD, like I go home and I just can't make my own structure around those things. But I loved to learn. And so for a lot of people, what they experience is they do really well in school, and then they get out of school. And then they have this disappointment of I'm not changing the world. Actually, I didn't amount to anything. I just am a normal person with a normal job. And my experience was a little bit different because what happened, my drop off was high school. Because what happened was, I went to a school where the way that they weighted grades was that tests, quizzes, participation, and like classwork were the majority of your grade and your homework was like a very small percentage. So even though I never, ever, ever, ever did my homework, I was the girl whose hand was always raised. I could sit there and listen to the lecture, not take any notes, and then a week later, take a quiz or a test and get a hundred on it because I would retain all of the information. It made sense. It was this interconnected web of concepts in my mind. But what happened was, even though I did get in trouble about the homework, I never got in too much trouble because I was still making straight A's. When I went to college, I went to an all-girls private prep school and two things happened. Number one, they started testing us on things that they didn't teach us in class. That'll get you. <laughs> right? Like I'm going to teach chapters one through three, and then you're going to go home and read and learn chapters four and five, and then you're going to get a test over all of it when you come back. And because I wasn't doing homework and I didn't know how, and I had no skills to figure out how to structure myself for that, I quickly started failing tests. And they also changed the way that they weighted grades. So now the work you were doing outside of class had a much bigger impact on the class grade. And so I started failing, literally failing Fs, Ds. I ended up having a lot of behavior problems, addiction problems. I got expelled from that private school. And so, you know, whether it's that experience or, or like your experience, but it, it's the same thing. It's this like, you get identified early as just being inherently better than everyone else. And it's so damaging. It's so damaging. And and when that eventually falls off, you, you're like, well, this was all I had. I was the smart girl. I was the competent girl. I was the girl that was better than everybody else. And then all of a sudden, like you said, you're in grad school or you're in the workforce or you're just like a regular adult. And we don't know where to go anymore. Yeah. And 
I love like your story is so interesting to me because like I feel like we are we're the same person, but like we literally took the two paths that we see undiagnosed neurodivergent, especially girls go through where you where there's that point of change. There's that point of the structure has broken down. And for a lot of people, it's going into college. For a lot of people, it's when they get married or they, they you know, they move out and they're like on their own for the first time. You know, for some kids it's high school, but for for like the vast majority, it it does tend to be college. But it is exactly what you just said. Like you, you know, left school, you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing with like behavioral stuff. And then I went the opposite way. I was the person who threw myself in with this like desperate clinging on to this idea that I had to be the best and I had to be perfect and whatever. So I'm going to go earn two degrees that I don't really need, you know, and like all of this stuff just to keep proving myself over and over and over. But that is like, that's kind of like the path, you know, you can either because perfect is the only option. And so it actually creates two paths. You can continue to pursue perfect or you can go anti-perfect. And I'm going to be the most perfect drug addict. I'm going to be the most perfect, like Kurt Cobain feeling, you know, look like just tragic. I'm going to embrace this tragic beauty fallout. I'm not even going to try anymore because if I try and fail, I'll have to own up to me being a failure. But if I don't try at all, if I don't try at all, Katie, and I just go use a bunch of drugs, then I just get to tell myself while I'm, you know, the failure of society, but then I get to tell myself it's just because I didn't try. I mean, I am smarter than everyone. I am better than everyone, but I'm not participating in society. So that's why. Right. Okay. So this is the burnt out, talented and gifted part. And then the next (laughs) part is the submissive part. And I will tell you this, like it folds right in because I find that if you're someone who has been sort of labeled competent, strong, extrovert, like those things, if you've just always sort of been in control, there is something about being in a position and being allowed to be safely submissive that is like so relieving. Yeah. Well, it's for me, especially like it's like, I think, again, people hear submissive and what they sometimes like fill in the blank is like perversion, you know, or like trauma or like whatever. And it's like, no, like I always explain it like a lot of like and I think a lot of neurodivergent people get this. But it's like at the end of the day, I'm exhausted from making decisions because every decision that I have to make throughout the day is just another like, you know, emotional expenditure. It's another spoon that I'm spending on whatever. And sometimes I don't want to have to do that. I'm tired, I'm exhausted or whatever. And the safety of having a partner who I trust and I, you know, I've communicate with and that kind of thing. But just looking and and, and being able to say, I just want to turn my brain off. You know, it doesn't even have to be a sex thing. Like the majority of you know, what I would say is, you know, my submissive brat with the praise kink is like, I let Chris choose what he wants for dinner. Like we just, I, you pick where we're going for dinner. I don't care. You know, like that kind of stuff. Um, Like it doesn't have to be like overtly sexual, but sometimes it's nice because like circling all the way back to kind of the beginning of the conversation, it can be so hard for me to turn off my brain. It can be, it is 
so difficult for me to get into my body. Like that is one of the hardest things for me is to just be present and be there in the moment and be like, okay, like I'm going to experience this intimacy with you. And so being able to just kind of look at a person that I love deeply and trust and say, and I'm sort of giving you the keys because I don't want to drive like that. It can be, it's such a relief. It feels like a sigh, you know, like that kind of thing. Yes, Um, the sigh. And I also, to me, it's also connected to like being told my whole life that I'm too intimidating Yeah, for the people that I'm attracted to. (laughs) Um, And so like, and, and like you said, it doesn't have to even be sexual or in the bedroom or any of that like but to have this moment of being told it's okay to wilt like you're not too intimidating for me like I will step up to the challenge like you're and it's there's something deeply affirming about for me the messaging of your worth stepping up to the challenge I see you where no one else sees you right everyone else sees intimidating but I see well, I see someone that will I can turn to putty in my hand. So there's this aspect of intimacy of like, I see you. Well, that's also I feel like that's like, that's where we get to like the next one, which is like the brat, right? Because for me, like, you know, like, I feel like, I don't know, bratting, I think gets like a bad rap, because like a lot of times a lot of like, there are a lot of I'm gonna say it, I can say what I want. I'm an adult. Like, there's a lot of toxic brats in the kink community who really like foist that onto people like they're bratting non-consensually and I don't get down with that but what I do like what will absolutely like drop my panties is that is that notion of like you are worth it like you're worth the work you are worth the investment and like for me I think it is it is reinforcing to myself that like I am desirable and that I am valid as I am, you know, but that looks like presenting a little bit of a challenge because like I want to feel desired and I want to feel like my asking you to take the keys, you know, and drive isn't an inconvenience. And I think a lot of that ties in also into like rejection sensitivity in a major way. But I've spent so long, I've spent so much of my life apologizing for my existence and apologizing for taking up space and apologizing for, you know, my accommodation needs and my, and just like how my brain is and how I am that being able to look at somebody and be like, not only am I not going to apologize, but I'm going to make it a little bit hard for you because I know that you want this and that you think I'm worth it. That's been one of the healthiest things for me as an adult is just that feeling of being able to like look at somebody and have that amount of trust and that amount of intimacy and that amount of vulnerability. And it just, but it comes in being silly and it comes in being goofy and it comes in, you know, being like a little bit sassy and sarcastic or whatever, you know, your version of brat looks like. But for me, it, it's about that trust and it's about that intimacy and and having that with somebody. It sounds trite to say it, but it's powerful. It's powerful and it's meaningful. And it's, you know, talking about like needs versus wants, but like, I don't necessarily think I need it, but like, it's something that I I want to have in my life because it is so good. It's just good. So I have two thoughts and I don't want to forget them, but for anybody who's sort of clutching their pearls and doesn't actually know what a brat is, can you give us an example of what that means or a definition of what that looks like? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think like 
The best sort of like shorthand explanation is like in a traditional power exchange dynamic, there is a dominant partner and a submissive partner. And traditionally, you know, the dom says, you know, like, I don't know, like, go drink some water. And the submissive says, yes, sir, or, you know, whatever honorific there is, and drinks the water. In a submissive brat relationship, that might look more like, why don't you come over here and make me, you know, where there's like a little, there's like a rise to the power. There's a rise to like, I don't want to say the occasion, but there is, there is a pushback there, but the pushback is based on the understanding that this is play, that this is a sort of like exploration of the power dynamic because, you know, we talk a lot about like, you know, the Dom having all the power, but in a, I think truly healthy kink relationship, there is a absolute power balance where the dom is agreeing to take the keys and, you know, drive, but the submissive says, and I trust you and I'm along for the ride. And so a brat sort of is like in that like middle ground where it's like, they're not necessarily dominant, but for me, like I literally a switch. So I go back and forth, but the brat moment is sort of about that moment of like, well, yeah, like you want me to drink water? Well, come over here and make me. And then whatever that looks like happens, but then ultimately they drink the water and the dog goes, ah, oh, you're such brat. Like, does, is that a good enough explanation? <laughs> I think it's a great explanation. I do. And I think that when we talk about people who want to like dip their toes into the water here, you know, if you replace drink water with take your clothes off, it's like, there's nothing dungeony about that for somebody that's sort of like, oh, I could never ask for that. But it's like, yeah, that, that's something that even the most sort of vanilla couple would be like, oh, well, that's an exchange that we might have, right? Yeah. You know, or you have 30 seconds to take off your clothes or I'm taking them off for you. Like, that's hot. Like, that's hot, you know? But it's also like, (laughs) but then like, you're not having to be like, oh my gosh, are they in the mood? Like, am I being an inconvenience? Like, what if they don't really want me to take my clothes off? Like, all of that is sudden, all of those like rejection sensitivity voices are suddenly silenced because this person is looking and going, And if you're not done in 30 seconds, we're going to have a problem, you know? And that's like, that's so powerful. Like that is so powerful for somebody who is accustomed to feeling like a burden and accustomed to feeling broken and accustomed to feeling like an inconvenience. Having that, I don't want to say subliminal, but that underlying message of, and if I didn't want this, I wouldn't be telling you to get it done in 30 seconds. Like it's the first, like kink changed my life. Like it did. Like I'll say it. I don't care. Kink absolutely changed my life because it it allowed me to the for the first time ever to be the one who is calling the shots being the one who is getting asked if I was okay being making sure that I was safe and supported and that's why I'm such a big sort of like advocate for all of the potentialities that kink holds in those spaces where you might feel insecure or you might feel less than or you might feel broken. Because I think over and over and over in a relationship like that, you're being told, no, I want this. I want you in a way that I think sometimes we aren't accustomed to communicating, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think it directly scratches that like itch or like heals that wound of like being too much. Like if you're told that you're too much your whole life, there's something that about you that comes to yearn for someone to say, not just I want you, but you're worth the work that it would take to want you. That 
Yeah. Because I know how to perform. I know how to be docile. I know how to be a good girl, you know, in the sense of like, oh, I'll laugh at his jokes and I'll talk quietly and I'll be quiet and submissive. Like, but I also know that that's not really who I am. And there's this fear and this experience, frankly, of when someone sees my real personality and it's too much, they won't want that. And so there's something really healing about that interplay, that exchange of, but if it's hard to love me, will you still want to? Yeah. Will you still pursue? Will you still push? Will you still? And you know, what's funny is like, we really do have this idea that kink is this like perverse thing. But when I look back in my life at the characters in movies and fiction that I relate, not related to the most, but that I gravitated towards that were like the most acceptable PGG character, like Elizabeth Bennett, right? Or like any character that is saying to, and that's why I was always obsessed with Jane. Like really looking back and realizing that the reason I was obsessed with Jane Austen is because of kink was because like she would do these characters of women that would say to a man, I hate you. And the man would go, well, I hate you. And she's this like difficult person. And then all of a sudden this man's like, wait, actually I'm in love with you. And even if you push me away, I'm going to keep pushing because that's how fucking maddening I am with how amazing you are. Like looking back and realizing that like, even in like my most like innocent identification of characters, it was this same dynamic. So, okay. I I have one really silly story about this. So speaking of going to grad school way too many times, I have two master's degrees in Shakespeare and my thesis advisor for when I was getting my MFA we were like going through my resume and he was like looking at it. He's like, okay, so you got like, you got Beatrice. Okay. You've got Kate. Okay. You've got Rosalind. Okay. You've got Lady Macbeth. Okay. And at some point he's like going down the list and he was like, have you ever noticed that all you play is brats? And I was like, (laughs) I mean, there's a reason why I play like a very limited scope of roles in Shakespeare, but it's like, because, but I, I think like Shakespeare is, is a little bit the same way. Like a lot of the women, that he writes like the really good lovers like Beatrice and and Kate are absolutely do that too it's that sort of like Austin dynamic of like I'm going to push back and I'm going to like talk shit and I'm going to like make you prove that you want this um and I love like tame like I mean, taming has is problematic for its its own reasons, but like Kate and Beatrice are my two characters to play, and I play them quite frequently. And it's be- but I love those characters. I like I love those roles because of that because it's that same like they're both burnt out gifted kids. Like they're brilliant women who are stuck in these dull sort of scenarios. But yeah, like it's, it's the same exact thing. <laughs> it's funny because I've been watching the second season of Bridgerton. I haven't started it yet. Well, let me tell you, there had been some audible like, yes, (laughs) from me in the moment, because it is exactly that story of like, oh, she's difficult and she's too much and she doesn't fit in and she's too smart. Oh, she's so hot. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) And I must bet her now. Like, (laughs) well, that's awesome. Well, listen. Katie, this has been the coolest talk ever. 
Hooray. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. This is great. You're so cool. I like you so much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just think you're so great. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, I like you too. When I went to rehab when I was 16, we had to do these like various treatment assignments to like build our skills or whatever. And some of them were really intense about like journaling about your trauma and things like that. But some of them were like very like basic level skills. So like we literally had a treatment assignment called like making friends. And (laughs) this is so funny. So you had to like write about friendship and like do all these things. There's like several things. But one of the things that you had to do, I swear to God, is you had to pick two people in the community. It was 16 girls. That's how big this treatment center was. We were 16. We were between 13 and 17. That was the age range. And so at group every night, because we had group every day, and like you had to do this assignment, you had to walk up to a girl in the group and you had to cross your arms. And they had to cross theirs and you had to hold their hands in that crisscross position. And you had to say these words. Are you ready? Katie, will you be my friend I do. and help me to make more friends? And literally the person would be like, yes, I will. And that is the funniest fucking thing in the world to me that they had us do that. And for years and years and years to this day, like girls that I went to the treatment center with, we will like, that's like one of our funniest inside jokes. We'll be like, Sarah, will you be my friend and help me to make more friends? <laughs> So every time somebody has, or like, it's always like fellow neurodivergent has that moment where they're like, will you be my friend? I know that's awkward. And I want to be like, oh, let me tell you something. (laughs) I am the master of explicitly asking someone if they want to be my friend and help me make more friends. So I find that endearing and awesome. And I'm so glad that we are friends. Hooray. All right. Well, Katie, can you tell people where they can find you? Oh, I would be delighted. So I go by Katie Soros on all social medias. I also have a podcast. It's called Katie and Eric's Infinite Quest in ADHD Adventure. We talk about life with uh, ADHD and neurodivergency and living life with depression, all sorts of stuff. Uh, We talk a lot about relationships and kink and that kind of stuff. And I have a website now because I'm fancy. Uh, You can go to katiesaurus.com and you can see all the cool stuff that I'm doing. Or you can go to infinitequestpodcast.com. You could go to all three. It, it whatever you want to do is fine. If you want to, if you want to, I mean, I, if it's not a bother, if you want to, I'm not. It's just, it's fine. As you could, if you wanted to, I wouldn't be mad. It'd be fine. We will link that in the show notes for everybody. Hooray! Awesome. Well, thank you, Katie. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.